and we're back with another episode of the Anarchist Experience, episode 315, aka Year 7, Week 13, uh, coming at you this week. As always, I'm your host, Mr. Richie Rich, along with MC and some people from Clubhouse. Yes, we are on Clubhouse now. Uh, best way to follow along at this point, because we don't have our own club set up yet, uh, is to follow me, Richie Rich, at Riches, the number four, Rich. So R-I-C-H-E-S, the number four, and then Rich again, Riches for Rich, uh, at Riches for Rich on the Clubhouse. Um, and we're this is the first episode on Clubhouse, so we're kind of messing around with some settings and seeing has, how well things go. And if this feature works out, then no more phone numbers, just Clubhouse invites. So what is going on with you guys this week? Um, I don't have that much for you. Um, I, I've noticed there's quite a bit of, of shootings. I think there was a couple people killed in, in, in my local area by the local police. Um, so that's kind of sad. Uh, one, one guy was a burglar, so, you know, at least uh, he had it coming to him. But um, he, he was unarmed, and maybe they should uh, learn some jujitsu or something to uh, you know take people down without killing them. I don't know. So here's the, here's the weird thing. This is, you know, it's it's a principled thing for me. But the weird thing is going going through you know firearms training, right? It, it's such a gray area when it comes to burglars, because depending on the jurisdiction, um, you can't just shoot the burglar, right? Sure. It's, it's, and, and it seems be, like you're allowed to. In this in this but, instance, uh, he he actually got on top of a cop and, and knocked him out. So. Okay. <laughs> And see, and again, then I don't know how I feel about that because, like, you know, two for one special, man. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's hard for me to it's hard for me to be sympathetic. Part of me wants to cheer for him. Right. Um, but the other thing was they they didn't announce that they were even police. They kind of just startled the guy, ran up to him, and he looked like he was panicking. But there's okay. there's there's a whole bunch of stuff that we don't know about that story. So. I, you know, yeah. but the whole thing was he didn't have a gun. Why can't these, you know, professional cops uh, figure out a better way to handle people? And that's what's sad about it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, basically because they're scared, right? Of course. They're they're scared. They have qualified immunity, which is going away in certain jurisdictions, but for the most part, they're allowed to do that. Whereas you, the normal average person, is not. Right. Like if 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 you're getting burgled. Um, th it's it's a legal gray area for how much force you can use to like repel that threat, but if you call the cops, right, the cops can roll up and do just about whatever they want, which I guess you kind of want if you're you know if you're the actual victim in that case. But <clears throat> the cops themselves should should know how to handle that situation better, even if they don't have to. Yeah. Uh, so. Do you have anything else for us? Do you have uh, some headlines for us to go over? Or? Uh, not that many. It was a slow week for me as well. So headline, <clears throat> why Biden's broadband bonanza is likely to fail. Uh, headline, where in the Constitution is the power to assassinate? And maybe we'll read that one first since that's you know, talking about use of force. Uh, Hawaii to allow nurses to perform abortions. I thought that would be interesting. Uh, on both, you know, the, the moral aspect and the legal asset aspect. Uh, headline, rule by fiat, when the government does whatever it wants. 
And finally, headline, cop used badge to carry out armed robbery of legal cannabis warehouse, disguising it as a raid. Do you want to start with the Constitution Constitution power to assassinate? Is that Sure. Sounds good. All right. Uh, from the Future of Freedom Foundation, the CIA and the Pentagon wield the power of assassination. We all know that. But a question naturally arises. How did they acquire that power? The federal government's power, powers emanate from the Constitution, yet an examination of that document reveals no power of assassination being granted to the national security branch of the federal government, or for that matter, any of the other three branches. When the Constitutional Convention met in Philadelphia, the United States was operating under the Articles of Confederation, a type of governmental structure in which the federal government's powers were so weak that it didn't even have the power to tax. The federal government's weak powers were not an accident. That's the way our American ancestors wanted it. The last thing they desired was a federal government with strong powers. They understood that that type of government would inevitably end up posing a grave threat to their freedom and well-being. But problems had arisen under the Articles, such as destructive trade wars between the states. Thus, the purpose of the Constitutional Convention was simply to come up with ways to alter the Articles to make the system better and more efficient. Instead, the members of the, the Convention came up with a proposal for an, an entirely new governmental system, a limited government republic, one that would have a relatively small, basic military. Americans were leery. This new government would have more powers than the federal government did under the Articles of Confederation, including the power to tax. They weren't interested in a powerful federal government. The proponents of this new government had an answer to their concerns. The new government's powers would still be limited to those enumerated within the document. If a power wasn't enumerated, it could not be exercised. Moreover, there would be no power to levy tax on incomes. Taxes would have to be indirect, quote-unquote. The powers enumerated in the Constitution did not include a power to assassinate. The last thing our American ancestors wanted was to be living under a government that had the power to assassinate people. They understood that once a government wields the power of assassination, people's liberties fall by the wayside because people tend to fall in line under a government that wields omnipotent power. Americans finally went along with the proposal for a new federal government given that the federal government's powers would be limited to those few powers enumerated in the Constitution, which did not include the power of assassination. But to make certain that federal officials got the point, our ancestors amended the Constitution soon after it was ratified to provide that no person shall be deprived of life without due process of law. Due process of law is a term that stretches back to the Magna Carta. It involves, at a minimum, notice and hearing. Before the government can take someone's life, it must first charge them with a crime and then prove their guilt in a trial. Our ancestors also amended the Constitution to guarantee people the right of trial by jury because they didn't trust judges or tribunals to decide, decide the guilt or innocence of people. Thus, the Fifth Amendment expressly prohibits the federal government from assassinating people. Moreover, by its express terms, this prohibition applies to everyone, not just Americans. So why then are the Pentagon and the CIA assassinating people? How did they acquire this power? <clears throat> the answer is a practical one. They acquired this power because there was no one to stop them from acquiring it. Given the overwhelming power that the national security establishment, i.e. the Pentagon, CIA, and the NSA, wield within the federal government structure, 
the other three branches of the federal government simply deferred and acquiesced to the assassination power. That way, one of the big consequences of having converted the federal government after World War II from a limited government republic to a national security state, the conversion ended up nullifying the enumerated powers doctrine as well as the Fifth Amendment. Yet that's not the way things were supposed to be. If the Constitution is to be changed, then people are supposed to go through the arduous process of securing a constitutional amendment. The conversion to a national security state was done through legislation, not through constitutional amendment. Thus the, con the, thus the conversion should not have operated as a nullification or amendment of the Constitution. Nonetheless, that is how Americans today have come to live under a government that wields the power of assassination, uh, a power that our ancestors would never have permitted the federal government to wield. Uh, end of the article. Well, that sucks. What are we going to do about it? Well, obviously nothing. Uh, <laughs> they what, might assassinate you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, one of the, the interesting points that I didn't hear raised that usually comes up um, with, with issues like this is uh, the issuance of, uh, of the letters of Mark, right? That was a, was a big talking point um, under Ron Paul when discussing, you know, how you fight terrorism, right? And it was, oh, no, you just, you as the, the government, you just issue this letter of mark, and then people go, you know, go claim the bounty, basically. Right. I've heard and that it one would seem, before. You've heard that one before? Yep. Yeah. So it would seem to me that, that that right there is, you know, the constitutional way to authorize an assassination. So it's not like... It, it's never my understanding that it's not in there. It's that there's a procedure to follow um, in order to do it by the book, so to speak, right? Like you, you, you can very well assassinate people uh, under the Constitution using these letters of mark. You just have to, you know, go through the the process of you know Congress issuing it and getting authorization to do so. So I don't know. Like, there, there's definitely certain things that are, you know, obviously not in the Constitution uh, that the government does. And what can you, you know, you said, like, what can you do about it? Well, not much, man. You know, yeah. this, this, this no, is I the mean, weird spot that we're in. There's, there's entire groups dedicated to the 10th the Amendment. And <laughs> yeah. it's like, it says it right there. You know, anything not in here, you can't do. And, well, they, they get away with a lot. So. Yeah, and they, they always find a way around it. Like it's usually you know general welfare or, or one of those catch-all clauses, um, but I, again I don't I don't know if I don't know if I agree with this article that's not in there because it seems to be in there just not expressly written the way that the, the you know some of the other ones are, um, but well, it also it puts a chilling effect on the people. Yeah, we have right? uh, KS wants to uh, give us yeah, some input the way, here. The way they've gotten around that is they say, well, it is in the Constitution in these uh, elastic clauses, uh, one of which is the Interstate Commerce Clause, which they broadly interpreted to mean almost anything uh, they want to do, and the Necessary and Proper Clause, which they broadly interpreted because, and by, and it's been upheld by the Supreme Court, which of course was appointed by the people who wanted to do it in the first place. Uh, it's an interesting observation, maybe not relevant to this, that Murray Rothbard points out that even the Constitution itself was established in 
in contradiction to the Articles of Confederation. Under the Articles of Confederation, a change could only occur um, uh, to the original articles that they had set out by unanimous consent of the states. And so when they held the first constitutional convention, believing that the unanimity was important to passing anything, some of those who objected just decided, well, we're just going to go home because we don't, we don't support this. And they left. But the Constitutional Convention proceeded anyway. And then, uh, I mean, ultimately it was ratified by, uh, by uh, all of them, but only with, uh, after uh, there were a lot of shenanigans that were pulled in order to, um, to tip the, the, the vote in the favor of the, of the Constitution. For example, uh, uh, votes uh, before people from the rural areas could even get to the voting position, uh, voting places and all that. But anyway, that uh, is an, a very interesting history. If anyone's interested in reading about that, it's Murray Rothbard's Conceived in Liberty. Yeah, that's a, that's a, it's a, a tome of information as far as like the history of the United States is concerned. Um, but what, what about, you know, like I said, the, these letters of Mark, like, does that, in your opinion, uh, KS, does that qualify the, the ability to assassinate as being constitutional or there is that? Yes, uh, I think so. Uh, I think it was intended to be something like when the British, um, crown would authorize privateers uh, to uh, become warriors during naval, you know, during naval um, confrontations and whatever. Uh, and that meant a private ship could be authorized by the queen to go ahead and, and ravage uh, enemy shipping. And um, I've even seen it argued that this was how it would have been far better to get rid of Saddam Hussein and Osama bin Laden to just issue a letter of mark, author, uh, you know, through the congressional process, of course, as you mentioned, uh, but issue a letter of mark so that privateers could uh, figure out how to assassinate those two villains without conducting a massive 20-year-long war against the population. So, yeah, I think that those are uh, properly in the Constitution, um, and it's, it seems much more of an effective form of defense than massive military action against general population. Okay. Okay. So now that we've established that, you know, we, we, we agree that it's in there somewhere, like in the letters of Mark that, you know, the, it is constitutional to, uh, assassinate people given, you know, given that you go through the proper channels, is it a good thing? that it's in there is that do we want that aspect of it in the constitution or is it preferable uh i think like the author suggests uh under the fifth amendment where no you can't just assassinate people uh you have to you know charge them with a crime and give them you know due process and if so should those letters of mark be removed uh amended out of the constitution perhaps well letters of mark and reprisal were considered um part of due process, you, 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 you didn't just uh, do it. You still had to issue letters by um, some proper authority that, that was issuing those things. Well, I suppose you could say, oh, well, that meant that the, the president could do it himself. I'd have to check the Constitution itself and see whether it's under the, the article of the 
Congress or of the uh, executive branch. I, okay. I would, because the declaration of, of war is under the articles for the congressional action, I'm, I'm guessing the letters of mark and reprisal are there also. Okay. How, how, do you, how would you justify the fact that that's part of due process, though? Like, you know, let's go back to Saddam Hussein. Um, you know, he was, it, it, the, the case is being made that um, this would have been a better way to get Saddam Hussein by just issuing a letter of mark and then having privateers go figure out how best to, you know, kill this gentleman. Um, but that doesn't really invite him, that doesn't really charge him with a crime. It doesn't really invite him uh, to a trial and give a proper defense, right? That's not part of the letters. That's true. It's just a matter of efficiency. And it's, you know, but, but presumably, um, I mean, uh, any... Uh, due process is what is decided by Congress in the first place. So if they decide that due process for for conducting a war is a declaration of war, then that's the that's the same thing. You you could say, well, the Congress doesn't allow another country to provide a justification in a court of law um, before they before they declare war. Okay, so if if Congress defines due process. Then, if we're trying to protect uh, American lives as opposed to foreign dictator lives, um, what's what's to stop Congress from issuing the same letters of mark against, uh, you know, the the FBI's top ten most wanted, right? And saying like, no, no, they've had due process. They've been known to be wanted for X amount of days, years, whatever, and now there's a letter of mark out on them because they have not submitted to criminal questioning. I guess. Yeah, you're 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 right. I th I think it isn't a, a guarantee of uh, of a um, being allowing uh, allowing someone to prepare a defense, uh, you, you know, um, which is what is guaranteed by the courts and jury process and all that sort of thing. Um, and I, I think that probably always the advocates of that will will say it's it's an expedient, it's a way to handle something that. Uh, um, I mean, like, like for example, so there, there's uh, somebody that starts shooting from uh, the Aloha Tower. Uh, do you initiate a trial by jury before you shoot back? Uh, I would say in that case, no. But it, the moment they drop their weapon and then put their hands up, you can't execute them on the spot, even though they're obviously guilty. Right? Once, once they're no longer a threat or acting threateningly... Uh, and they've surrendered. They're they're they you know they're no longer they're no longer an immediate threat that needs to be quelled. And then you have to go through the you know due process and judicial system of officially charging them with a crime, giving them the opportunity to defend themselves in court, however long that may be. <clears throat> right. Well, yeah, uh, that's a good uh, excellent point. About when you say when they they drop the gun and surrender um i suppose uh in some of these cases that uh where the police have used their action that uh, it was somebody who was running from them not necessarily a threat but they didn't surrender uh and they charge well i thought that cell phone was a gun um and uh you know i mean there's there's a lot of uh, uh 
wiggle room for the police to argue that it was um, that they they hadn't surrendered, or else they would have just been yeah. Lib- but even even a fleeing suspect, right, is not necessarily a a violent threat to bystanders or the community at large, right? Oh, like yeah. That's that's still not an appro- that's still not an appropriate time to take the shot. Um, oh yeah, in I, my opinion. Yeah, right. Sure. Right? I, like, one of the one of the trials going on right now is the you know Derek Chauvin, the and the uh, the the guy who knelt on George Floyd's neck in Minnesota. Um, for allegedly passing a, a fraudulent twenty dollar bill, right? Like that's the big that's the big trial going on in the news right now. Yeah. Um, and one of the comments I've seen made on social media is, "Well, how do we know that the United States judicial system is corrupt?" And the answer is, we're having like a prolonged month long trial uh, for a murder that everyone saw, right? <laughs> because there's there's video all over the place, you know. There the evidence is the the video evidence is pretty damning and pretty crystal clear. Um, yet this is the American system, right? So he is you know took a while, but charged with the crime, is having evidence uh, presented against him, um, you know, to to prove his guilt in that crime, and he has been given ample opportunity to defend himself in court uh, against those charges, right? And no matter that it's on video, no matter that there are, you know, witnesses abound, um, this is the slow-moving American judicial system to make sure that the, the defendant gets their fair shake in an American court, right? And I, I think it was designed that way to be slow, to be plotting, to ensure that it's gotten right, uh, you know, hopefully the vast majority of the time, and uh, on the on the premise that better to let an innocent man go free, or better to let ten innocent men uh, go free than you know than to convict one, um, uh, better let ten guilty men go free than to to put one innocent man behind bars. Is what I'm trying to say, uh, and that's the way our system is allegedly designed, right? Yeah. So so we don't want expedience when it comes to assassinating people or, you know, damning the the guilty to death um, unless they're unless they're an immediate threat to life and to life around them at in the moment. Sure. No, no challenge there. OK, so, so if that's the case, then the letters of Mark should be stricken from the Constitution then, right? Because if it's the, if the only purpose of that is expediency um, and uh, uh, an ill-defined, you know, definition of due process according to, you know, the, the uh, co- uh, uh, congressional branch of government, um, maybe it's not, maybe it shouldn't be in there at all, right? Maybe, maybe the, the, the power to assassinate should be removed from the Constitution in whatever form it is in, um, and then we go back to what the uh, the author of the article says, and that's like, no, they 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 took a power that they were never that was never enumerated, um, and we need to to take that back in some form or fashion, potentially. Well, I, I see the letter of Mark as an enforcement tool, but I don't see it as a judgment uh, tool. It's uh, presumably the I. 
Well, I think the way the government gets around using uh, the protections of the Fifth Amendment for uh, so much of its actions uh, internationally is because they say, well, international, and the Supreme Court has said, non-citizens are not protected by this by the Constitution. You know, so basically, they've allowed, uh, you know, bombings and assassinations of people in other countries because they say, well, sorry, the Fifth Amendment doesn't apply to anyone who's not a citizen. Okay. And, um, but I think that if if it was a citizen, then there there should still be the trial and all the due process before they should issue a letter of bark. I think the letter of bark is just simply saying this private enforcer will be used instead of a government enforcer. And okay. like that, we have we have bounty hunters, which are private enforcers, and uh, probably more efficient a lot of times uh, than, than a government uh, bounty hunter. So uh, the government allows that not as a judgment tool, but as an enforcement tool after the judgment's been resolved. So in order to get to the letters of mark, there has to have been an offer uh, to come to some sort of trial slash arbitration to answer for crimes. And then that either has to be what ignored or refused. And then, you know, uh, trial in absentia and then found guilty in absentia and then the letter of mark issued to uh, to f you know fulfill the the uh, sentencing is that how you envision it yeah I guess so yeah because <clears throat> I don't see it as as the judicial tool I see it only as uh, as um, you know the uh, enforcement tool after the judgment has already been uh, reached by due process, you know. Okay. So, in the in the case of Saddam Hussein, then let's continue this thought experiment. Um, what what uh, American crime was Saddam Hussein uh, alleged to have committed? Like, what American law did he break that American had the the the, the jurisdiction? to try him for any, anything um, leading up to the, a letter of mark if it went that far? Well, that's a very good question. I'm not sure that I, uh, I don't know of any way that he actually, uh, you know, broke a law under the jurisdiction of the United States. Now, he might have, like, for example, when he took over Kuwait, um, and by the way, it's just such a murky thing because the U.S. government, uh, I think, illegally supplied Saddam Hussein for many years before, you know, because they wanted him to fight Iran. Sure. Of course, all the behavior of the U.S. in Iran and over the years before that was horrendous, too. Uh, I suppose a case could be made that uh, an American company had their their assets uh, confiscated uh, when, or, and maybe some uh, American officials roughed up or even even killed when Saddam Hussein invaded uh, Kuwait. But okay. I, I don't, uh, in my opinion, uh, that's not justification for the United States uh, doing punitive action in another country. I'd say if you, if your company uh, loses assets in a foreign country, that's your problem. And you should have considered the insurance and protection costs entirely on your own, that it's not yeah. the of the U.S. government to, 
uh, seems like it happens in the jurisdiction of the foreign country, and you you take it up with their laws and their system of of uh, justice. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I, I like uh, an old statement by Will Rogers: When you get into trouble five thousand miles from home, you've got to have been looking for it. And yeah. He was referring to the American uh, uh, invasion of the Philippines and the, what they call the Philippine insurrection, meaning rebels trying to resist the occupation by American military after the Spanish-American War. And that was totally unjustified uh, too. And uh, But Americans, out of their sense of patriotism, seem, seem to have this feeling of Americans have a right to impose their will anywhere in the world. Well, yeah, and that's why, you know, the, the Americans insinuate themselves in, into conflicts all over the world. Yeah, right? yeah. Like, you know, the, the, the general opinion of, you know, normal people, right, is that, you know, we, we have to fight them over there so that they don't come and bomb us over here. And that's, that's the way to keep America safe. Um, and they're always, you know, they're always talking about like, the, oh, the insurgents attacking the U.S. military, you know, it, over there. Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, you you mean the the you know the patriots defending their homeland, right? They're they're being invaded, um, and they're defending their homeland, uh, but you're calling you, you know you're calling them the bad guys, right? That doesn't that doesn't sit well with me either. And 750 American military bases all over the planet is bound to um, uh, have conflict of all sorts, um, right? And yeah, I think it's uh, I think it's very easily demonstrated that the, uh, even when America was threatened, it was because there was action by the United States and the the preceded that, like World War II. Yeah, people say, well, uh, the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. Yes, but if you go back in time to American intervention in World War One, and uh, a lot of the behavior of the Philippines and, and various places around the world, I think that. Uh, it it laid the the fertile soil for this kind of conflict later on, and you, could, you the best way, as Thomas Jefferson pointed out, um, peaceful relations with all and and entangling entangling alliances with none um, is the best way to have a general peace, generally peaceful world environment. But the U.S. government has so often. Um, Done its best to uh, to poke its nose abroad, and I think that I mean, like, like consider that um, the defense of the British and the French throughout the the twentieth century, the British and the French and the Germans and the Italians and the Spanish, they all had their great empires. What the U.S. government had no business defending all those empires, <laughs> but yet they off they went. Yeah, yeah. Right. And and to tie this back around real, uh, briefly to the you know the the assassination question, um, even with it was under uh, I believe uh, President Barack Obama, right where there was the authorized uh, authorized assassination of a United States citizen, right who happened to be abroad, right that the, um, I forget the kid's name. You remember the anybody remember the kid's I, name? I don't remember the name, but I do remember the incident. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, sure, he may not have been, like, the best United States citizen based on his, like, familial ties. Um, but there was no, 
there was no justice for him, right? There was there was no repercussions for the president at that time for that act, which you would think if it's, you know, illegal, unconstitutional, violating not only the domestic policy, but, you know, international policy as well, that there should have been some ramifications and repercussions at that time. And there was not. That's right, because you, you the, the in the courts you you got to have jurisdiction, and there and once he's dead, the only people that would claim a jurisdiction to challenge the government's action would be family members, I suppose, and then you know, uh, uh, and 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 uh, I guess there weren't any stepping forward to to take up his case, or maybe there were, but but you never hear of it because they, I'm sure, they just bury it. Um, yeah. But again, but again, that, that chilling effect, because all of a sudden, um, assassinating Americans, American citizens, right, by the federal government is back on the table, right? Like all of a sudden, you know, it's, it's not even a theoretical or a hypothetical scenario. It's, yep, they did it. No, there's nothing you can do about it. Um, because even though, you know, evidence was crystal clear, that the assassination was was authorized and carried out, um, that there was going to be no you know no repercussions to the executive at that time for what was clearly a violation. And so if you're if you're the American people now and you go like, well, there the government is assassinating American citizens without due process and there's no there's no ramifications. Um, all you have to be is you know a dissident. Right or a libertarian, perhaps, uh, in 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 the way of the you know might of the United States federal government, and you could easily find yourself on that list as well. Yeah, it is a bit scary, really scary. And so MC asked earlier, uh, you know, what can be done? And I I didn't have a good answer, and I still don't. Do you have a an answer of how we how we roll back those powers, how we take back control? Um, of at least that one assassination power by the United States federal government. Oh, my, my go-to answer right now is secede. Go to Texas and secede, and and start start over, and hopefully uh, come up with uh, you know better neighbors. Okay, I mean, if you, you go to Texas and secede, your neighbors are still the United States for the most part. I mean, you got you got Mexico. No, I mean, the, you're with, surrounded within by the, the within the borders of Texas. Okay. Chaos is that is secession sufficient, or or does it make it more likely that you're going to get attacked? Because again, now you're not protected by the United States Constitution at all. You're just another foreign entity that, if you get in the way of the United States, hey, you you get a letter of mark, right? You know, where jurisdiction apparently doesn't matter, and boom, you're you're now more likely to be assassinated because there's no pretense of of justice. Well. Secession, as I understand it, um, uh, would be an impossibility. Uh, as we've seen, the, the, the Civil War was that uh, case where they just said, sorry, for um, the United States government was very hypocritical. Of course, they helped Texas secede as a state of Mexico. They helped uh, Panama secede from Colombia. They helped uh, Kosovo secede from Serbia. In numerous cases all around the world, they helped them when it was in their interest, but they objected to the notion of sense of secession when it was the uh, southern states. 
and uh, I went to war. So I, 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 yeah, I would, I would say that it, it doesn't resolve your problem to have secession. Secession just won't be allowed. MC. Eh, that's that's my favorite anyway. So okay. <laughs> <laughs> I don't really have a, a, a repose for that. <laughs> All right. Um, anything else on the assassination question? Because I think we've covered that all the way through. All right, moving on. Uh, headline, I want to cover this one because I, I, I know how you generally feel about the topic, but then eh, we'll see how this goes. Uh, Hawaii to allow nurses to perform abortions. Uh, published four days ago, so uh, I don't know. Uh, Governor David Ige on Monday signed legislation that would make Hawaii the latest state to allow some nurses to perform abortions. Hawaii law previously said only physicians could perform early in-clinic abortions. But because of a doctor shortage, several smaller islands lack abortion providers, which forces residents of those islands to fly to Honolulu if they need the procedure. This act will enable people who desperately need reproductive health care services to receive health care from a very high quality health care providers, including advanced practice registered nurses where they need it, when they need it, and in their own communities. Laura Reichart, the director of Hawaii State Center for Nursing, said uh, a bill signing ceremony. <clears throat> the new law, which took effect when the governor signed it, allows advanced practice registered nurses to prescribe medication to end a pregnancy and to perform aspiration abortion, a type of minor surgery during which a vacuum is used to empty a woman's uterus. The nurses will be able to do both during the first trimester of a pregnancy. The aspiration abortion may be performed in a hospital, clinic, or nurse's office. Advanced practice registered nurses are nurses who have obtained at least a master's degree and are trained and certified to diagnose and manage patient problems and prescribe medication. Several states already allow this category of nurses to perform medication or aspiration abortions, including California, Colorado, Maine, Massachusetts, Montana, New Hampshire, Virginia, Vermont, and West Virginia. Hawaii has a long track record of favoring abortion rights. In 1970, it became the first state in the nation to allow abortion at a woman's request. But the state's doctor shortage means that the islands of Kauai, Molokai, Lanai have lately lacked local abortion care providers. On the Big Island, abortion has only been available in Hilo, but not on the west side. On Maui, a provider has to fly in from another island twice a month. Early in the coronavirus pandemic, doctors weren't able to fly to Maui, and abortion care was unavailable on the island for several months says Dr. Rennie Soon, the chairperson of the Hawaii section of the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists. <clears throat> the legislation E.K. signed said studies have found abortion provided a qualified licensed health care provider other than physicians were just as safe as those provided by doctors. Advocates say advanced practices, registered nurses already provided procedures that are similar to or more complicated than abortions, such as inserting IUD and conducting an endometrial biopsy. Most testimony to the legislature supported the new law. Those in opposition included groups that oppose abortion more broadly and those concerned that the advanced practice registered nurses wouldn't have the same training as doctors. Um, so I know MC, uh, I don't know your opinion. I think I know your opinion, KS, but I know MC, you're against abortion in principle. 
but are you in favor of allowing, you know, expanded allowance of people able to perform it? Or did you want that as narrowly defined as possible by the state? Um, I think ab abortion as it's understood is, uh, is, is murder. So in my opinion, um, so basically there's no reason to ever have an abortion if, uh, if the mother uh, is having a, a, a problem with the pregnancy, like it's threatening her life, then what you do is try to bring the baby out alive. And if it dies, you know, death is part of uh, life anyway, uh, that's okay. Um, but there's no reason to end the baby's life before it comes out. It doesn't, right. that doesn't make any sense. So uh, that's what abortion is. It's ending the life of an uh, unborn child, and I think that's murder. So um, am I going to uh, rush out and, and uh, uh, you know, try to imprison some female for, for attempting that or getting somebody else to help her with that? You know, probably not. It's like none of my business. I, I don't really care that much. Um, but, uh, you know, it's not something I would ever, uh, you know, want, want anybody to do. Um, this is, uh, right. it's not something I would participate in or, uh, and I, and I don't think it should be, um, I guess, accept, accept an, an acceptable thing to, you know, advertise for. Like if somebody's advertising, Hey, we do abortions. It's like, Okay, uh, you're guilty of murder. Uh, you know, let's, okay. let's, uh, you know, I, I think at that point it would, they, they'd be going too far. Um, right. So, so I hear that, I hear that on the, the moral and the ethical argument. Um, but the, the, the state argument, right, is shouldn't anyone be allowed to do it? Like, why should, why should the government have control? Uh, over who's allowed to perform these, I'm going to say medical procedures, I'll allow you know you to continue to say murder because, I, again, I generally agree with you. I just don't want that to become the focus of the topic. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I, I can't even, I can't speak on that because I've already, uh, you know, made my, made my claim that there's no justification for uh, killing a baby before it's born. Okay. Uh, so... That's that's that. I mean, it's, 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 it, my, my my way of looking at it is much more uh, simple. Okay, so you you would be in favor then, perhaps, of more restrictions by the state on who's allowed to do this. Uh, if you're going to call it murder, you want the least amount of murders as possible. So you you may want a a special license that only certain physicians or you know doctors of some kind be allowed to no, perform I, this procedure. If if the way we're going to do it is, is government, um, then I, I think it should be uh, illegal. Um, if we have no government, then I would say to uh, the community, like, don't let anybody perform abortions um, and, and, you know, find, find a, you know, <laughs> a way to do it uh, so, that, so that it doesn't happen. Um, so, yeah. Interesting. All right. Well, I was going to throw it over to KS, but he dropped out. So let's just move on. Um, three more headlines. Uh, I'll let you pick the, the next one. Uh, rule by fiat when the government does whatever it wants. Biden's broadband bonanza likely to fail. 
or the cops carrying out an armed robbery of a cannabis warehouse? Uh, the cannabis warehouse. Okay. Headline, cops used badge to carry out armed robbery of legal cannabis warehouse, disguising it as a raid. <clears throat> uh, this happened a few years ago. Uh, when the owners of the Los Angeles marijuana distribution business noticed a marked Ford Explorer, sheriff's unit, and three armed men in their driveway back in 2018, they had no idea why police would be there as they were completely legal operation. Being innocent was no defense, however, because the men behind the badge carrying out the raid were bona fide criminals and robbed them of $2 million in cash and cannabis. The lead officer on, of, on this armed robbery disguised as a raid was Mark Antrim, who was assigned to the Temple City Sheriff's Station with the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department at the time of the incident. This week, Antrim was sentenced to seven years in prison for his role in that raid. The seriousness of the crime could not be overstated, U.S. District Judge Virginia A. Phillips said during a court hearing which he handed down the sentence. The heist, which sounds like a movie script, was tragic for the victims and eroded the public's trust in law enforcement, the judge said. Antrim, like so many other cops, was a bad one. In October 2018, he decided to use his authority as a police officer to rob an innocent cannabis distribution company under the color of law. Antrim, who was off-duty, and two other criminals, Kevin McBride, 45, and Matthew James Perez, 44, checked out an LASD SUV and drove to the cannabis distribution center. When they arrived at the facility, Antrim and his fellow criminals, criminals were met by another accomplice, Daniel Aguilera, who was driving a rental truck to help haul off the marijuana and $600,000 of cash they were about to steal. According to a statement from the Department of Justice, the incident unfolded as follows. During the early morning hours of October 29, 2018, Antrim and his co-conspirators dressed as armed LASD deputies and approached the warehouse in an LASD Ford Explorer. Upon arrival, Antrim flashed his LASD badge and a fake search warrant to the security guard to gain entry to the warehouse. To perpetuate the ruse that they were legitimate law enforcement officers, Antrim and two fake deputies sported LASD clothing, wore duty belts, and carried firearms. One fake deputy also visibly carried a long gun to further intimidate the guards into submission. At the beginning of the two-hour robbery, Antrim and his co-conspirators detained the three warehouse security guards in the cage of the LASD Ford Explorer. Soon after the guards were detained, a fourth man arrived at the warehouse in a large rental truck, and all four men began loading marijuana into the truck. <clears throat> when Los Angeles Police Department officers legitimately responded to a call for service at the warehouse during the robbery, Antrim falsely told the LAPD officers that he was an LASD narcotics deputy conducting a legitimate search. To facilitate the sham, Antrim handed his phone to one of the LAPD officers so that the police officer could speak to someone on the phone claiming to be Antrim's LASD sergeant. The individual on the phone was not Antrim's sergeant, and Antrim did not have a legitimate search warrant for the warehouse. After LAPD officers left the warehouse, other co-conspirators arrived, and the robbery continued, allowing the fake law enforcement crew to steal even more marijuana and two large safes containing over half a million dollars in cash. All those who participated in the raid have been sentenced to prison. Christopher Myung Kim, 31, a former employee of the warehouse, was also sentenced for his role in planning it because Antrim rolled over on Kim in court 
And in spite of the fact that Antrim was a cop at the time, Antrim's sentence was half that of Kim's. Even after abusing his badge and betraying the public's trust in the most egregious manner, Antrim was still given a sweet deal. Uh, end of the article. So, not much to it there. Any surprise uh, from you? Uh, that's, that... that's pretty surprising, actually. That's, okay. that's, that's pretty bold. It, okay, go. please go on. Like, it doesn't... To me, I'm not surprised that officers would behave in this way, um, that they would take advantage of their, their status. Um, I mean, bold, yes, but they. I, I think the reason that they do this type of thing is because they anticipate being able to get away with it, right? Be, because they they have the color of law behind them. Sure. And, and I think b- besides the, the legal version of uh what, what do they call that when when cops take things um civil asset forf- forfeiture law yeah um they have that and and when they can get away with it they just don't even report it and they just keep it so right um if they don't if they don't log it then it doesn't exist uh, if it's cash or drugs or whatever um then they use it in other crimes and you know you know, uh, the, 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 the weapon that gets confiscated that never gets logged, right, just becomes a stolen weapon on the street to be, you know... Planted on somebody, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it's unfortunate. Um, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I don't know what else to say about it. It's pretty cut and dry. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess my, I, my question was, was you know, is, is it surprising? You, you seem surprised. Um, but again, I don't know. I'm, I'm glad that they got caught. Right. Well, it's it's, it's, one it's of also good surprising stories. because of how well they, how big of an operation it was. It's <clears throat> it's not just you know one person. That's usually what it is. It's you know the, the bad cop, and 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 most cops aren't that bad. Uh, when you when you have a whole uh, bunch of people in on it, then you have more potential people, uh, you know, more potential problems if you're doing anything illegal. So. Um, yeah, it's 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 a that that was you know quite surprising that they've got okay. mul- so many people involved in making this big this big scheme and even having a, a number for somebody you know outside uh, for them to call and and uh, you know and make this big lie yeah. you know that that's pretty it's pretty bold. <laughs> I wonder if part of it too it did the article didn't say was I wonder if some of the the people involved were his subordinates, right? Like, you know, yeah. they, they may they may have started off as, you know, decent human beings, potentially good officers. Uh, and, and, you know, the boss says, hey, we're going to go make some money by raiding this distribution plant. And all of a sudden your career advancement opportunities hinges on your willingness to do illegal things. Right? Yeah, maybe. Like I could see that. I could see that factoring in not justifying the, the behavior or making excuses for the officers. Um, but it's always, it's, the, the power over structure is always a, a mechanism for abuse um, to get yeah. people without that power to do so things w- that they may not have ordinarily done. I did want to, I guess, put in a word about uh, the solution to that, and that's to end the drug war. There's no reason anybody should be raided for a plant or any uh, substance um, unless they're, they're harming people. So, yeah. 
um, yeah, if they're if they're selling products that that aren't are not what they claim to be, and they're they're uh, causing problems, then yeah, maybe they need to be taken down. But um, I'm sure that other people besides just the the police would want that in a situation yeah. where the only people that care about them operating at all are the police, then the police shouldn't be involved. You know? <laughs> yeah. Well, again, based on this article and this story, you have to assume that the drug war was over, right? Because this was a, a legitimate cannabis oh, sure. warehouse yeah, yeah, exactly. in, a, in a state where everything that they were doing was above board, right? For all intents and purposes, the drug war did not exist in this scenario. It was, you know, it was, it was a big lie. A bad yeah. cop. Yeah. G- claiming to be, you know, a, leg- a legitimate raid that should not have been authorized at all, right? Mm-hmm. Which is, I think, what, what tripped him up, I guess. Um, if, they, if the drug war was still a thing, right? If, if, if this was, you know, a, a, if a legitimate raid was possible in this scenario, I think they would have had an easier time getting away with it because it, was, it would be, have been more, seen more as justified. Yeah. Right, like er- early on in the California legalization spectrum. So right there. <clears throat> so may- maybe the maybe the solution would have been then for the for the guard just to open fire on all the on all the cops and and uh, that would have been the end of it. I mean that he would have been he would have been within his right and his duty as the security guard. Right. Right. I mean, but in in the beginning, right when California first opened up legalization, there were still raids by the feds. Right. Right. And the the California Sheriff's Departments, in my opinion, did the wrong thing by assisting the feds in harming legal California operations. Mm-hmm. Right. Like the, the, the Sheriff's Department and the California uh, law enforcement should have been defending uh, the California citizens and the California businesses against federal raids. Like that would have been appropriate. Right. Uh, much like you said, you know, firing on the. So, you know, the, the security so my answer is still kind of the same and, and the drug war. And I mean, end it federally. There should be no question by anybody that they don't have the right, right to do it. So when he shows up with a warrant to search his place for drugs, it's like, no, that doesn't exist. You, yeah, you that's know, no you longer to, You need thing. to be shot. <laughs> you know? Yeah. No, I hear you. But if, if that was still the case, like, you know, maybe instead of, instead of um, you know, dressing up as... Uh, as 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 local cops, right? Maybe you know, don the DEA uniform, right? You know, instead, because hey, at least at least that way there might be less of a question. Because hey, you know, it's still it's a federal raid mm-hmm. as opposed to a, a a state raid. Yeah, I don't know. All right, do we have time for one more? We have five minutes. All right, um, five minutes. You say. Let's just do this Joe Biden one then, because I think the rule by fiat is kind of a longer article. And I don't know if I can squeeze it in there. Oh, everybody likes ripping on Joe Biden. Okay. Why Biden's broadband bonanza is likely to fail. Never-ending infrastructure week is back, baby. And it's bigger than ever. The Biden-Harris administration's proposed infrastructure jobs bill is both expensive, with a $2 trillion sticker price, and expensive. What isn't infrastructure these days? According to some senators, everything from personal care to parental leave could fit the infrastructure bill. It's a deliberate reframing of what most people think infrastructure is. 
President Biden says that infrastructure is about putting Americans to work to get the job done. I, for one, require high-quality organic coffee and lots of it. His press secretary, Jen Psaki, does admit that this is mostly intended to be a job-creating package that creates good union jobs, higher-paying jobs. Well, it is called the American Jobs Plan, not the We Will Build the Roads Plan. Oh, and somehow all of this is going to be green, too. What is the climate but a bit of natural infrastructure? It's obvious why the inner party would prefer a broad definition of infrastructure. The more that qualifies, the more that can be funded. How convenient that so many of the proposed neo-infrastructure programs just so happen to be largely operated by or for the benefit of Democratic constituencies. It's much more reasonable to include high-speed internet deployment as part of an infrastructure package, beyond the fact that it involves installing literal, literal utility equipment in the physical environment, having access to the internet is an essential part of contemporary life. The White House is going for some New Deal retro appeal, hearkening back to the 1936 Rural Electrification Act. Broadband is the new electricity, folks. As we'll see, the administration is drawing from more than just Great Depression nostalgia in selling their plan adding a good dose of real deal central planning on top. Okay, okay, so broadband is infrastructure. Apparently it is super infrastructure, judging by the funds they want to spend. The package includes some $100 billion intended to close the digital gap in America, bring down costs and promote competition. That's a lot of fiber optics cable. For a frame of reference, previous broadband infrastructure packages only included single digits of billions for expansion. So how is America's broadband infrastructure anyway? It's pretty good. Not the best, but getting better. Although the U.S. digital infrastructure was able to handle the stresses from COVID-19, remote work, and home isolation fairly well, there are still parts of the country where people lack access to fast, affordable, and reliable internet. This is the digital divide, which the Federal Communications Commission has made a priority to close under the Trump administration. There's definitely room for improvement. You can look at connectivity from a few different angles, speeds, prices, and access. The FCC tracks internet speed across uh, OECD countries. Uh, oh, yep, countries. In most recent report finds that the U.S. ranked 10th among developed nations in 2016. New America has some handy international data on average internet cost. The U.S. falls a bit higher in monthly costs than the international average, but it's far from the most expensive. The FCC has tracked the digital divide in its annual broadband deployment report for several years. Its most recent publication finds that the number of Americans living without access to acceptable internet has dropped to around 14.5 million in 2019, a fall of about 4 million from the previous year. So if we want to improve America's digital infrastructure, closing the digital gap in terms of access should be a top priority. You would think you could easily do that with $100 billion on the table. Unfortunately, the broadband fund will almost certainly not be wisely spent. From the looks of it, the Biden-Harris administration's plan to expand broadband access will be a big waste. The reason is that the massive spending plan mostly doubles down on policies that have already failed in the past. One of the biggest problems is the plan prioritizes support for broadband network owned, operated by, or affiliated with local governments, nonprofits, and cooperatives. A long way to say, funds government-run internet. The plan fact sheet claims that these providers have less pressure to turn profits and therefore more of a commitment to serve entire communities. 
That's not what the experience with government-run internet has shown. Time and again, forays into such networks have resulted in higher costs, not lower costs. Municipal broadband hasn't done much for access or jobs either. It's because government-run internet providers don't feel pressured to turn a profit that costs and service suffer. One reason is implied is that the fact sheet itself, the network is run for the benefit of employees and incumbents rather than the community it's supposed to serve. These government-run networks tend to end up as a handout for the people lucky enough to get the largesse, not the community as a whole. This vintage throwback to FDR-style government-run services may presage yet more big government policies from the bad old days of central planning and austerity. Although the plan doesn't explicitly state it, there is a risk that this broadband push may result in a move towards old-school rate regulations. Much of the language discusses overpriced internet services and price transparency. Keep an eye out for such rhetoric to morph into out-and-out calls for government price regulations of internet services. There's a lot of pointed language about future-proofed infrastructure, too, which isn't specifically defined but has been interpreted to mean a bias towards fiber broadband. This is an odd choice at a time when one of multiple delivery mechanisms, fiber, wireless, and increasingly high-speed satellite, could be better fit for a particular area or customer. Any serious plan to expand broadband in America should not prioritize a particular channel, even if you really, really like the aesthetics of the Tennessee Valley Authority. You should set a goal and incentive for a variety of organizations to compete and best provide services. This is what we've largely done to close the digital gap so far, and it's how we'll keep finding success. Actually, there is already a ton of federal and state money up for grabs, explicitly intended to expand broadband access. The federal government has allocated some $100 billion, there's that number again, to promote fixed high-speed broadband in rural areas for the past two decades, though the FCC's Universal Services Fund's Connect America Fund. Before literally doubling down with more money on this effort, why don't we improve the program that already exists? My former Mercatus Center colleague Brent Skorup and Michael Kojus have thought a lot about how to reform USF spending to better effectuate the connectivity that everyone wants. Right now, the funds mostly subsidize telecom providers and unequally at that. The bulk of the 2018 funds were doled out to providers in five measly states. Plus, these programs are mired in high overhead costs and inefficiencies. Here's a better idea. Why not rearrange those funds as consumer voucher payments that households can use to directly lower their broadband costs. This introduces more market choice as households can make the best decisions for their own broadband needs while smoothing out regional inequalities and getting away from the incentive problem involved with simply giving money to providers. And what of the supply side? There is much that the governments can do to encourage faster broadband infrastructure deployment. The goal should be to make it easier for companies to build out the structures that need states should consider implementing policies like dig once which makes it easier to install new fiber equipment when someone's digging in the ground anyway. Consumer vouchers and smart fiber installation norms may not be as sexy as 1930s-inspired Rural Broadbandification Act, spending bonanza on government-owned networks, but these ideas have proven track records of success. We already know how to expand internet connectivity. Biden's municipal broadband abalooza is not the way, but it should prove profitable to the party allies fortunate enough to grab some of the handouts. Uh, end of the article, your thoughts on how to improve the, the broadband infrastructure of the American rural citizens. More freedom. No, that's pretty much it. But um, we are out of time, so I don't, I don't have to say my thoughts today. 
All right, let's wrap it up then. That'll do it for us. You guys know where to find us, anarchistexperience.com. On Telegram, t.me slash anarchist experience or t.me slash the anarchist experience. And if you'd like to contribute to the show financially, you can do so through Patreon, patreon.com slash the anarchist experience. Thank you very much for listening. I will talk to you all next week. Peace.